This is our next to last week in Jude. Um, we, uh, we like expository preaching here, so we typically go through books. And uh, word on the street is a Malachi or Ruth might be next on the agenda, but um, that's all I'll say about that. For those of you who are new, I'm dro- you're, you're coming right in the middle of the story. You're like walking into a movie like an hour late, so I'm going to get you caught up to speed, okay? There's a guy named Jude, big surprise there. He's writing this story sometime between 68 and 70 AD. He's the half-brother of Jesus, okay? They have the same mom, obviously. They've got different dads, uh, virgin birth, uh, non-virgin birth. And Jude, like most of his siblings, did not become a believer In Jesus, he did not become a follower of Jesus until after the resurrection took place. He didn't believe that Jesus was who he claimed to be during his earthly ministry. And so, writes this letter to a group of believers between 68 and 70 A.D. And this is essentially what he's doing. He's writing this letter calling the believers to be willing to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Because certain persons have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. They are spiritual pretenders who have worked their way into the church. They are people who essentially are like, yeah, dude, I love Jesus. Like, okay. But something doesn't seem to be super right about their claim to be a follower of Christ. And so he writes this letter to the believers because he wants to unmask these spiritual pretenders. They're not legit. And it's not that they're not legit in a theological sense. They would affirm, oh, Jesus is Lord, but they deny him in a practical way. It's really the only way to make the sense of verses 3 and 4 make sense of the text. As I I said, if if they were denying um, Jesus in... uh, Jesus is not Lord. He is not Savior. He wouldn't have said in verse 3 that they've crept in unnoticed. So it is a, not a theological denial, but a, a practical one. Much like in Titus 1.16, where Paul says that they profess to know God, but they deny God by their actions. It's not that there's issues of sin. It's that when confronted, instead of repenting, they say, and make whatever excuses they need to make to justify their sin so that they can claim to be Christians without actually repenting or altering how they believe to keep in line with obedience to Christ. So that's the issue. They're there, and a lot of the people here in this story don't, aren't, aren't aware that they're here. And he wants to unmask them. He wants that the believers here in Jude's story to be informed of what's going on, that these people are not as they appear to be. And that sets us up for verse 17. But you, once again the believers, but you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions want to spend some time right now with verses 17 and 18. He calls on the believers to remember. Doesn't want them to forget. And the things that he doesn't want them to forget are things that the apostles have spoken of. 
they have made predictions, and the predictions are about the last times. Now, I don't know about you, but I have, I have different people, and they'll come, and they'll talk to me, and they'll be like, man, we're, we're living in the end times. That's, a, I think, a very christian statement to make, whether for better or for worse. We're living in the last times, we're living in the end times, right? I'm like, well, yeah, like we are, but technically we have been for 2,000 years, we may be for another 2,000 years. I'm just, just saying. I, you know, um, and the, the reason I, I say that is because when we look at this text, it seems that Jude views himself as living in the last times. So I always tell people, yeah, we're living in the last times. Have been for 2,000 years. Might be for another 2,000 years. I don't know. But Jude views himself at least as living in this climactic point of history. And so, these predictions are referring to the last times, which would mean the time in which his readers were living is the time that he is referring to, since the prediction is describing the people they're encountering. They are encountering these people that are part of this prediction. And the prediction is that in the last times, there's going to be certain ty- types of things that happen. Certain events are going to take place, and then, oh, by the way, certain people are going to show up. And these people that are going to show up, they're scoffers, he says, following their own ungodly passions. So scoffers are going to show up, and scoffers in the Hebrew scriptures is usually this type of person who despises religion, morality, don't like it. A scoffer is, is someone who doesn't believe that God is going to judge them. And so, they feel free to indulge in really whatever type of behavior they want to indulge in. And this is just as true today as it was then. I turn on the TV. And by turn on the TV, I open up a new web browser. Not that that's really relevant to this story, but I'll keep going. And uh, I like watching this one segment called Waters World. There's a guy named Jesse Waters, and he does a a little segment on uh, a Bill O'Reilly show. His segment's not really political. It's really more satirical. It's kind of tongue-in-cheek. They go around, they interview people, and he was interviewing some ladies uh, recently in Manhattan, in Times Square. And like I said, not Christian whatsoever at all. He goes up, and he's like, he poses what I thought was an interesting question, because it's a question I've posed to people before. He says, what do you, how do you think God feels about what you're doing? Or, or something to the effect of, what do you think God thinks about what you're doing? And she says, oh, I don't think God cares, because, you know, God doesn't judge. So, yeah, he's okay with this. And I thought that was a very interesting thing, because I'm, I'm, I'm working through this sermon. I'm like, wait, this, the scoffers, the scoffers, they don't believe that God's going to judge them, and so they feel free to indulge in whatever behavior they want. That's what I thought of. She said, I, I, don't, I don't think God cares. Whatever. Like, God doesn't judge. And that is the mindset of many people today in which absolute truth, no. Truth is relative. Truth is whatever you want it to be. 
That's true for you? Cool. This is true for me. You believe that's right? I believe that's right. You believe that's wrong? You believe, I believe that's wrong. That's really the mindset of, of many people today. And of course, as soon as she says that, like, I don't think God judges, so I, you know, he doesn't really care. He's okay with this. I immediately thought of, I remember reading somewhere in the Bible that, that something that says the opposite. Oh yeah, that was right. Last week's sermon. Uh, I'll go back to verse 14. Verse 14, it says, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So apparently he doesn't just judge, but he executes judgment and then he also convicts and it's basically of everything that you've done. So that's, what I, that's where my mind went there. And so what we see here is Jude wishes to identify those that one Enoch condemns with those of whom the apostles predicted would come. They're scoffers. Verse 19 says this. It is these... Okay, who are the these? They're the scoffers. They're the spiritual pretenders. Okay, got it. It is these who cause divisions. Well, that's not good. Worldly people devoid of the Spirit. These spiritual pretenders probably claim to love Jesus. Yeah, I love Jesus. Claim to have the, the Spirit. And Jude says, no, you don't. Yeah, we do. No, you don't. Jude feels strongly enough about this that he says, nope, you don't. You're devoid of the Spirit. You don't have the Spirit. You're physically alive, but spiritually you're dead. You've been unregenerated. Like, you've not been regenerated. There is no Holy Spirit present in your life. Like Titus 1.16 says, and I've used that many times in these sermons, as illustration for the ideas and the situations that are happening. They profess to know God, but they deny God by their actions. And so he says, they cause divisions, first of all. They're worldly people, second of all. And oh, by the way, they don't have the Spirit because they're not even saved. Then verse 20 says this, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Chew on that for a second. Here in verse 20, Jude is going to cause or call his audience to focus on what they need to do in order to stay in the love of God. That's that's what he's going to call them to do. I want you to focus on this in order to stay in the love of God. I know that sounds like an extreme, maybe Arminian position to some of you. You're like, that's that's strange. I'm just preaching the text right now. Um, And I'm not saying that you can lose your salvation because of this, in case you're you're thinking that. Um, But he says, essentially, this is what I want you to focus on. I want you to focus on building yourselves up in your most holy faith. Oftentimes in the English, we use the word edify, but unfortunately, sometimes it really misses the mark of 
the, the building metaphor that not only Jude, but other people in Scripture uses. We don't realize this, that he's using this because there's a, there's a building metaphor. He wants, he wants his readers to see this, that we are to build each other up in our most holy faith. So, I mean, that creates some imagery right there, like hammer, nails, like, hey, you know, I'm gonna, this is kind of loose. Hand me that. Thanks, thanks, Josh. All right. Okay, hey, can you take the tape measure? Let's run over here. Uh, what do you got over there? Okay, you know what? We want to put some support beams there. Like some of you, like this is, this is the metaphor that he wants to awaken within his readers. He says, this is what I want you to focus on in order to remain in this most, in order to re- remain in the love of God. I want you to focus on building each other up in your most holy faith. And what is clear from this passage is that this is collective. That is it's not that individual followers are to build him self or herself up, but that followers of Jesus are to build the community of Jesus up. And of course, this contrasts with what he just said in verse 19. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. The spiritual pretenders causing divisions. He says, no, no, I don't want you to cause divisions. We do the opposite. I want to build yourselves up. Do that. And one of the most practical ways that we see this happen is at and through the local church. I don't know why we do small groups. We do small groups so we can do what Jude tells us to do. Now you say, are there other ways that you can build, build do this without small? Yeah, there's, there's other ways. There are elements that take place in this service to a certain degree through the music, through the preaching of the word. Can you do it outside of church? Yeah, you can do it outside. But what I really think how this functions best is in a small group setting and context where we have intentional time that we can get to know and be known, serve, care, and love one another. So why all the, all the time I'm just like pounding this thing like, hey, do you go to small group? Are you a part of a small group? Because it truly is the lifeblood of the church. Can you build others up in your most holy faith outside a small group? Yes. But you get the most bang for your money, pardon the cliche, in and at small group. And you guys know, you guys know, I mean, part of my story, I mean, I came to Liberty 10 years ago as a freshman, and man, I just, I was just wasted so much of of my, of my life, and I never joined a local church, let alone even, even went as a regular visitor to a local church. Small group? No, not, not really interested. I had this I, I, I mentality. I had this very consumeristic version of Christianity that was all about me. All about, eh, I don't like the songs. Yeah, I didn't really like the preaching. Yeah, I, I don't want to go and do that. What can they do for me? It was totally wrong. And that's why I, I, I bring this up whenever I get the chance, whenever I see a practical application, because this is so important. Guys, if you're not part of a local, like a local church, be a part of it. You, know, you want to go to small groups? Go to small groups. Like you said, I don't want to go to small groups at Lynchburg City Church. Okay, fine. Like, find another church and be a part of that church and go to the small groups there. I just say, like, this is so important. And I just, you know, some of you guys, I just don't, don't miss out on this. I, I missed out on so many blessings 
and not just for myself, but the opportunity to use and exercise my spiritual gifts and bless other people and to do what Jude says, to build themselves up, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Because it's not just about us. It's about the community of Christ collectively. It's about the people to your left and right. It's about people in this room that you have things in common with that you don't know. Good things, bad things, hurts and pains. That's, that's, that's why I say all the time at Lynchburg City Church, like, like we're a family. Like we, we live life together. It's so much more than coming here and just warming this pew on any given Sunday night. Like it has to be. It has to be more than that. Especially if we're to do what Jude is telling us to do. To build yourselves up in your most holy faith. So, this most holy faith is seen almost as this extra part of the metaphor, the building. So, it can be viewed really in one of two ways, if not both, as the foundation or even as the building material. But in a very practical way, this most holy faith is, I'd say, two parts. Part one is right teachings about God. Going back to verse three in the story, a couple weeks ago, he calls the believers to be willing to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. It's interesting. That was once for all delivered to the saints. He could have said, just contend for the faith. He says, contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints because he probably is under the assumption that people are going to push back as people push back today. Well, that's, that's really old school stuff. That doesn't apply today. This is a very progressive society. You need to adapt and change. Like, you know, that's, that, that's, that verse is only one time in the Bible, or that's just the Old Testament. And, and he makes it clear that this is right teaching. This teaching's good to go. This teaching, it's sufficient. It needs no revision. It needs no update. Like, there's no software update patch we need to download, okay? Like, this iOS, it's set. It's good to go. So part of this most holy faith is right teaching, but the other element of it is accompanied with commitment and obedience. Jesus says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So part of this most holy faith that is used either as this foundation of the building or as the materials in and of themselves is one, right teachings about God, and two, especially within New Testament contexts that are also used, this commitment followed with obedience because the spiritual pretenders, after all, are, if you remember, claiming, yeah, I love Jesus. And then they're also, at the same time, perverting the grace of our God into sensuality, using God's grace as a license to sin, using God's grace to say, I don't need to repent of this. Oh, it's okay because of, and then justifying their sin, however they may have been doing that. Well, he says, no, no, this, this is our most holy faith. It's element of right teaching and commitment followed by obedience because at the end of the day, like, here's the big difference between you and the spiritual pretenders. They call him Lord and in the same sentence tell him no. That doesn't make sense. See, if he's your Lord, you can't tell him no. You can't tell him no. He's, he's the Lord. He's master. You don't say no to your Lord and Master. That's what they're doing. So build yourselves up in this most holy faith. And then the second element, remember, these are practical ways in order to, in order to, 
keeping yourselves in the love of God. And the second thing he says is praying in the Holy Spirit. Say the spiritual pretenders, these guys at the church, these guys in this community, they pray? I'm sure they pray. But remember, he also says, what did he say in verse 19? They cause divisions, they're worldly people, they're devoid of the Spirit. I'm sure they pray. Of course, when they pray, they don't have the Holy Spirit. You pray, you've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. Big difference. That's the difference. He's drawing contrast all throughout this text today. There's a couple other times we're going to see it as well. Believers are to pray. Believers are to depend upon God. Now, oftentimes, especially um, in our late teens and early 20s, we see relationships come and go. Okay? We see relationships come and go. And there's different types of relationships for whatever reason. Usually the ones that stand out in your head are not usually the good ones. They're usually the bad ones that stand out in your head. I mean, all of us seem to have a real eye for spotting those ones that aren't good. And you see them. Like, you see, the, you see the girl who comes on the hall, and all you see, and this could be used either way, and she comes, and you just see her sleep there in her bed because, like, she is literally, like, with her boo 24-7. I mean, she's, she's with him, or the opposite around, opposite way. Like, he's with his bae. Is that the right usage of the word? Is that the, that the right usage? Okay. And, and you see it. Like, they, they have to be with them. Like, they're, like, I mean, figuratively, like, attached, like, hooked, like, clipped in. They cannot be left alone. They're like, I, I got to be with him 24-7. Now, come here. I mean, they're just like, they're like, is he like a zombie here? What, what is going on? You laugh because there's elements of truth to that. Right? And you, and you see, and they're like, yep, that's codependency if I ever saw it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you're, everyone's like, yep, I have at least one, if not ten people in mind right now. <laughs> of course, there's one unique relationship that there, that there is that, that's actually a really good thing. There's, there's one relationship in the universe in which... Being needy, super clingy, super dependent on the other person is not a bad thing. And that's our relationship with God. It makes much of the creator of the universe to be needy. Interesting. You see people when they pray? No, people rarely pray like this. Hey God, I just want to check in, let you know everything's good. If you need any help, uh, just let me know, alright? Like no one prays like that, right? When we pray, we're, we're, we're needy. We need His help. We're dependent on Him. And that makes much of Him. Like me being needy tells to the universe, you don't, I don't have it all together and I need His help. It makes much of the Creator. Like prayer in and of itself glorifies God. I don't know if you realize that. Like when you pray, it glorifies God. Because you don't have it all together because you're not totally self-sufficient. He is the only being in the universe that is completely self-sufficient. He needs nothing from anyone. And so he says, I want you to pray in the Holy Spirit. What does that contrast with? These spiritual pretenders. Because when they pray, there is no Holy Spirit. And we pray and we depend on Him in keeping us in His love. And then he comes to verse 21. So this is 20 and 21 are kind of connected. So he says, keep yourselves in the love of God. We know that. He's already given us two practical ways in which this takes place. And then the third thing he says is waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So the third thing is waiting. Waiting. 
waiting. And this is a real danger for worldly Christians. Because we don't like to wait. This idea of waiting in the original language conveys this idea of looking with great expectancy. Having, you might say, this eternal perspective. We're waiting for Him. Waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And the real temptation for many worldly Christians is not to wait, to become so saturated and so intrigued by the things of the world that we begin to focus our energy and affections not on God, but on everything this life promises us. And for worldly Christians, this is, this is hard and we become at times more immersed in the world than we should be and we begin to love the gifts rather than the giver who is to be forever blessed. And then we realize that this love, this joy begins to slowly evaporate. So we haven't been waiting, we haven't been looking with eager expectation, we haven't been mindful of these eternal things. We haven't had this eternal perspective. Waiting's the third thing. It is, it is really a mindset that we have. And everything we do as we wait for the mercy of our Lord. One commentator says that the word mercy sometimes in this way, it could be kind of misleading because in English, it applies that one's crying out for favor. Like a prisoner, maybe before a judge, and they don't know whether they're going to get it or not. I might get it, I might not get it, I don't know, it's up in the air. As another commentator wrote, mercy is not something that we have already received for the final judgment has not yet happened, and yet as believers, we come confidently before God. Because we know that we are in good standing. We know that we have his favor because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. Well, that's great news for some of us. Not so great news for others. Because this is once again standing in a stark contrast with the spiritual pretenders. Because they're going to come to judgment one day. But there's no hope of mercy for them. They will be judged and convicted, verse 15. The blackest darkness is reserved for them, verse 13. They have been destroyed, verse 11. And it's implied that they will receive the punishment of eternal fire, verse 7. And yet, how are we, now that these individuals, how are we supposed to conduct ourselves now that they've been unmasked? He's unmasked them. What are we supposed to do now? in the aftermath of this little spiritual battle in this community. Well, he says this in verse 22, have mercy on those who doubt. Might not be your first reaction, especially those of us who struggle with patience more than others. 
because some people in this community, they're doubting. They're literally, in the original language, they're wavering because the spiritual pretenders have exercised their might and muscle, and they're thinking, I don't, I don't know what to do. Like, okay, we just, they just heard this letter from Jude, but, I mean, what about these guys? Are they really wrong? Can it really be this way? I don't know, like I'm so torn because, you know, I, I just hung out. We just watched the Rangers game last night and saw them beat the Blue Jackets and it was awesome and exciting. But, but are they really bad guys? I mean, is it really wrong to believe these things? I'm so torn. And Jude says this and they're doubting. They're wavering. And Jude tells the believers to show mercy to them to have mercy because the temptation is to dismiss them i think the temptation is is oh you doubt okay well i don't have time for this right like like you should have gotten this by now it's you know it's that simple joe preached from it he retold the story like he just read the verse and talked about it like how do you not get this come on and, and that's sometimes a temptation that we have, right? We don't, we don't want to have mercy. We're just going to get it or don't get it. Make up your mind. And for those of us like that, um, he says to have mercy on those who doubt. And then he says and continues this thought into verse 23, and he says, save others by snatching them out of the fire snatching them in the original in the original language it it has the strong image of just seizing something and and just taking it by force and so he pictures some of these individuals they've been almost singed by the fire of hell this type of foreshadowing you might say of this future judgment and he says snatch them out of the fire. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. The image suggests that many of these people have been, you might say, seduced by the spiritual pretenders, these false teachers, and yet there is still hope that some might be reclaimed, that some might be rescued, that some might be restored to a right relationship with God. Yet, even though they're, they're teetering on the edge and, and Jude pictures them, right? The flames are lapping at their feet. Like, I don't know, when you were little, maybe on the playground, you played like the lava game and you had to step from here to here and there was only a couple spots that you could, you could go and, and here they're at that last little perch and the flames are around and he's like, he's like, save some and snatch them out of the fire before they are fully lost forever. To others, show mercy with fear. I thought this sentence was perhaps the strangest I came across because I'm like, that's kind of a weird thing to say. Show mercy with fear. Well, that's, that's like, what are they supposed to be afraid of? What does fear have to do with showing mercy? Like, why are they coupled together like this? And the answer is, is because in showing mercy... To those who are sinning, it's quite possible to get drawn into their sin. So Jude advises them to show mercy with fear. Like one working on the edge of the flames, so to speak. It's not just that the 
the rescuer, it's not just that those being rescued are in danger, but the rescuers themselves are, are in danger. I mean, this is like the guy who comes and he's like, listen, Joe, I want to be a light to some of my Christian, some of my unsaved friends. I'm like the only Christian in their life. Maybe some of you, this is you like right now. And you're like, I don't, I don't want to just stop hanging out with them altogether. But, but, you know, I, where's the balance? Like, where's the line here? Because when I do hang out with them, I feel like I get pulled, I feel like sometimes I get pulled in, like, more than I, w- I would really like to or even should get pulled into that situation. Or like the, the girl who's missionary dating. Or it could be a guy. Oh, oftentimes it's a girl. You know, and She's like, well, I can't just stop talking to him. I'm his only Christian friend. What do you do? Well, Jude warns that the danger is not just for those being rescued. The danger is also for the rescuers. That they, in trying to reach down on that little spot and pull them out of the flames, that they themselves might find themselves in the same situation now. Which is why I think it's so important, going back a couple verses, that we keep ourselves in the love of God. And what's one of the ways we do this? I think by refueling ourselves, by building ourselves up in this most holy faith so that we can recharge and we can have people speak truth into our lives and we can have people pray for us and know us and we can talk to about these things. I think that's one way to mitigate the dangers in those situations. And I am not by any means advocating missionary dating. Okay, just so I'm clear, because that is a very unwise and foolish thing to do. Not that Jude had this, I think, in his mind at all. But I think we see those type of actions as practical applications to this text. And so he closes and says, Hating even the garment stained by the flesh. If I had to guess what was Jude's favorite Old Testament book, I'd probably say it's Zechariah, because this is the second time in his letter of 25 verses that he draws upon imagery from the third chapter of Zechariah. He does so in verse 9, you might remember, with the archangel Michael, but here he does it again. And I'll read you the story. In this vision that he has, Joshua the high priest is standing there. And Zechariah 3, 3 to 4 says, Now Joshua, now I'm going to illustrate the part about that we just read about hating even the garment stained by the flesh. So in Zechariah 3, 3 to 4, he says, Now Joshua, standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your inequity away from you. And I will clothe you with pure vestments. Here, the picture is dirty clothing equals sin. And so in Jude, he says, to, in Jude, he says, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Hating even the garment, because he equivocates the garment is sin. And this garment would have been like their undergarments. Okay? Not like the outer layers, not necessarily like this jacket, but it would have been like, they're undergarments. You can imagine undergarments, how yucky and disgusting they would have gotten in the first century with no air conditioning. Okay, I mean, you thought pit stains are bad today. Like, I mean, this is gross. And I'm intentionally trying to gross you out with uh, conjuring up this imagery because Jude has no problem doing it. 
So he says, you hate even the garment stained by the flesh. I lived on the dorms at Liberty for, uh, for quite a while. Probably. Fourteen semesters, seven years. I was there for grad school, too. You come across some really gross things. Some really gross things. I remember one room, I, there was one room, I, I walk in this guy's room all the time, I couldn't even see the floor. Now, I, you, you say, yeah, right, I, like, I am being honest with you, I could not see the floor. <laughs> Justin can probably testify to that, that guy's room. That's a true story, right? I couldn't see these guys. I, I couldn't see the floor. I, I couldn't see the floor. Okay, like some of you guys, you know what I'm talking about. You're like, yeah, there's some there's some non-hygienical things that happen on guys' dorms. Okay, that, that I'm getting some yeah, that, like some north south going on right now. Yeah, I remember sitting around one time, and this guy somehow it comes up in conversation. We're all like, like we're sitting there in the in the common area, the quads. Anybody from quads here? Yeah, quads. I got it. Five years in the quads. So. We're there on the quads, and we're sitting in the common area, this living room type of place, and we're all kind of smelling this stench. And the one guy says, oh, guys, I'm, I'm sorry, this is probably me you're smelling. I'm like, it's you? He's like, yeah, I haven't done laundry in three months. He's like, I'm all out of Febreze, so. And, uh, I, mean, I mean, it was so bad, like I, like, I wanted to tell some of the freshman guys, like, hey, guys, if you go in there, let me know so I can take you to the hospital afterwards. I mean, it was, it was that bad. It was that, I mean, we probably should have called the CDC and have, like, guys with hazmat shoot show, show up so they could, like, take the things and just, like, do whatever those guys from the CDC do with things. Yeah, burn them. Like, it was, it was that gross. It was disgusting. I mean... Just, just gross. And so you're kind of getting a picture, you're kind of getting a snapshot of the imagery that Jude is using here. He says, hate even the garments, like these undergarments, they would have just been disgusting, and they're stained by the flesh. So in Zechariah, the high priest is delivered from judgment with the order to change his clothing. And here, people are also to be rescued, and their clothing, meaning their sins, are to be hated. And left behind. You don't know what repentance is? Repentance is, as Jude would say here in this context, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Like repentance, 180 degree turn. Like it's, it's a hatred for the things that God hates and a love for the things that God loves. A desire to be like Jesus. That's, that's repentance. And of course the temptation for many is they have these clothings and they're like, all right, I hate it, I'm leaving it behind. And then after a while, you know, some small child could come across that. I can't leave that there. You know what? I'll just, I'll just hang on to this. I'm not wearing it. I'm not putting it back on. Just, just hang on to it shoulder starts bothering me. You know what? I'll, 
I'll just, uh, I'm not, just got around my waist. It's, okay, it's not like I have it back on. And then slowly you find yourself slipping back to the very place that you came. We are to hate even the garment stained by the flesh. And, and that illustration I just showed you, that's a real temptation even for believers today in fighting the sin, right? Justifying different things. It's not sex after all. So, or it's, it's not really that bad or, you know, I've only got the jacket wrapped around my waist. It's not like I have it zipped all the way up. And it happens. Jude, keep in mind what he's trying to say here. He says, I want you guys, I want you guys to keep yourselves in the love of God. And here are some very practical ways you can do so in building yourselves up, in building yourselves up. And this, I think, takes place in a very practical way in small groups, through small groups, at the local church, in prayer to God, as well as waiting and keeping this eternal focus on God. And, of course, he gives this instruction for the others that we might snatch some of them out of the fire. But when you're doing those, when you're interacting with those people, be mindful. Their influence is there, maybe stronger than you even realize. And you have to be very careful, otherwise that you might go and join in along with them in whatever sin it might be, the issue. And finally, this idea of hating it. We might hate our sin. That we might view it as disgusting as some guy's room on the dorms. Like, it's, oh, that's gross. Well, sin is gross. It is disgusting. And I don't know, some of you, man, some of you in here, it might have a real hold on you right now. And you can't seem to let it go. And so I would pray, as Paul prayed in 2 Timothy 2.25, that God might perhaps grant you a heart of repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. I can't make it happen, but he can. Jesus, we love you. We worship you. We praise you because you are God. So I pray... that you would help those of us in here today who need your help. Because some of us are struggling and some of us, we're not hating the garment stained by the flesh as much as we probably should for someone who has been regenerated and saved. And others of us in here, maybe we've never actually totally done that, hated that to that point. And so I pray that you would grant those in here a heart of repentance, that you might give some people for the very first time eyes to see and ears to hear, a mind to understand these things, that it would go beyond just words on a page Jude's words, maybe, maybe for the first time, might prick someone's heart in a profound way never experienced before. I pray, God, that ultimately you would keep us in your love. We need you. We're nothing without you. And so I pray, as St. Augustine would pray so long ago, Lord, command what you will. 
and give what you command. Enable us to do the things that you ask of us. And we pray this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, in our great God and King, Jesus' name. Amen.